0: As
1: you turn in your Bible, if you're not there already, to chapter 12 of Matthew, just a little heads up that this will be our last week in Matthew for a number of months. We're going to take a little bit of a break for Advent, heading into the, into the end of the year in Christmas, which falls on a Sunday this year. And yes, we are having church on Christmas morning. It's okay. Um, and then in the new year, we're going to do a longer series looking at our church's mission statement in preparation for our 150th celebration. Like, who are we as a church, and who have we been as a church, and who are we now, and who, is, who do we think God is uh, calling us to be as a church? So that'll be uh, in January through April. Now, this week, we're heading into Thanksgiving week, right? The classic American holiday. And many of you, I, I think we all kind of have different takes on what we think of, of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And a lot of it has to do with our family. And so some of you, as you think of spending time with your family over Thanksgiving, you can't wait. You're excited for your kids to come to town, or you're going to invite your, see your kids, or grandkids, or or get together with family. It's really life giving, and that's a few of you. And others of you can't wait till it's over. Right? And you know that Thanksgiving is going to come with all sorts of awkwardness and, and difficult conversations, perhaps, or the avoidance of difficult conversations. And that may come as well. And there's a lot of family dynamics that come with the holidays. And today, as we look at this passage, um, it really is a passage about family here at the end of, of Matthew chapter 3. In particular, what does it mean to be a part of God's family. Now, in the passage that came before this in Matthew chapter 12, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus uh, was talking to some of his opponents, and he had connected, in general, he connected our words with our hearts. So, so he gives us a few metaphors, but in particular, says, like fruit from a tree, that words that come out of our mouths are the natural byproducts of what is in our hearts. Okay, what is in, in the depths of our being and who we really are, that comes out through our speech. So he's, he's saying this to a group of opponents and, and basically tells them, like, look, on the judgment day, you're actually going to answer for every careless word that you speak. And then just as if on cue... The first words that come out of these guys' mouths are unbelieving words. Words that show that they have an unbelieving heart because they demand a sign from Jesus. We want to see a sign. And then Jesus responds by telling them what's in their hearts in verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He says to them. And the, the word there for seeks is actually a little bit stronger than just looking for something. It's looking for something, but demanding it. Demanding it. Uh, uh, it's forceful. They demand a sign. And I want to I spend a few minutes just on this, on this verse right here in verse 39, getting our heads around this statement of Jesus. So, so first, let's think about what Jesus means when he talks about a generation. We're all a part of a generation. Um, You might be, there may be a few, there's not anybody in here who's still part of the greatest generation, is there? For many of you, that was your parents. Your parents who were were of the age during World War II. Maybe they fought in World War II. They had family members who fought in World War II. They came home from the war and built a strong nation here in the United States. We call them the greatest generation because they went through that and came out better in the end. And then they came back from the war and started having children. And many of them had you, or let's say, many of you are their children. Okay, there was a baby boom, and if you were born in that post-war generation, you were called a baby boomer. That's your generational title. And yes, uh, for you millennials and Gen Z in the room, when you say, uh, "What is the what is it? What?" I'm, I'm getting there. Hold on a second. What's, what's the phrase we say? It was, it was in my head. Okay, Boomer, thank you. All right, thanks. You know the phrase, you just don't know what you're talking about. So you're talking to my parents, basically, when you say that. Um, okay, Boomer, is the, is the way to, to respectfully disrespect your elders in today's, um, in today's parlance. It's basically, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to listen to you or, or do what you say. Um, then came... My generation, which is the best generation. <laughs> Gen X, right? So if you're, you're Gen X, it was kind of the, the children of the boomers. And, and we have this kind of cool uh, demeanor of we don't really care about anything kind of, kind of look at the world. And then came along the millennial generation, those who came of age or right around the millennium or so. And by the way, boomers... The millennials are now adults. Okay, they're they're not the kids anymore. That's these uh, the Gen Z young people today. So the, there's all these there's all these different generations, and we and we you know we can label them however we want. Those are all uh, just kind of pull them out of the air to describe different generations and how we interact. And so when we think of generations, that may be what we think of: Silent Generation, Boomers. Uh, greatest generation, boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, we we may think in that way. When Jesus speaks of generations, though, it should urge us or it should at least spark us to think more biblically about what a generation is. Because when Jesus says the word generation and calls these people an evil and adulterous generation, that should actually click in our head something from the Old Testament. In fact, the part of the Old Testament you all love so very much, the genealogies. Everybody get to the genealogies as you're, write, as you're reading through the Old Testament and you start taking a nap, right? Because it's all these begats, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, or, or fathered so-and-so. and It goes through all these generations of people who descended from, from other people. And when Jesus says generation, that's actually what we should think of. These are important parts of the scripture because they trace, if you will, different family lines, different generations. The book of Matthew itself, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 1, begins with the genealogy. In fact, it's Jesus' own family tree all the way back to Abraham, chronicling his family history. So, so a generation, biblically, doesn't stand by itself. It stands in relationship to those who have come before and those who come after. So a generational thing isn't like we're separate generations and, and you guys are old or you guys are young and we critique each other. It's an understanding that we're in relationship from generation to generation with those who've gone before and those who come after. So generations has to do with family. This is all a story of Jesus talking about what it means to be a part or not a part of God's family. And the question is, are you a part of God's family tree? Are you a part of his genealogy? And this passage can be broken into three sections that address this this very question in different ways. This first section, verses 38 to 42, really look at the question of family through an ethnic lens. In other words, are we part of God's family based on our descent from from faithful ancestors? Am I a part of God's family because I can trace my line back to Abraham or back to King David? Does that make me part of God's family? Jesus will answer that question. Then in the next section, verses 43 through 45, we... Jesus looks at it through a ritual lens. In other words, are we part of God's family based on our behavior? Based on how good we are at living up to God's standards and making our life right? And then thirdly, the third section looks at family through a social lens. Verses 46 through 50. Are we a part of God's family based on our social or biological relationship with Jesus? And then Jesus looks at the question of being part of God's family through these three different lenses. So we're going to walk through each one here. Now, the first thing that Jesus does say about his generation is that they are evil and adulterous. And you may remember back in the Old Testament the story of Israel. And there was an entire generation of Israelites except for two individuals, Joshua and Caleb, an entire generation who as adults came out of Egypt in the Exodus and ended up spending 40 years in the wilderness and then dying in the wilderness without entering into the promised land. They were what was called the wilderness generation. And Jesus purposely is actually here comparing his own generation to that rebellious people in the wilderness. Listen to how Moses himself describes that generation in Deuteronomy 32. And you can hear the echoes of what Jesus is saying here. Moses says this. They, this generation, have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, it's worth noting that in the passage we're in, in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 33 to 45, which is a total of 13 verses, the word evil is used Seven times. So out of 26 times that that word is used in all of Matthew, it's focused seven times in these 13 verses. So Jesus is obviously trying to say something about what evil is here. Evil is the same word that's used as a noun to refer to Satan, the evil one. It's it's used later in this passage to describe evil demonic spirits. So for Jesus, an evil generation is one which, even though it may look like it has everything together on the outside, like we've got our life together, it's really on the inside of people who are serving the evil one. Remember, Jesus called them a brood of what? A brood of vipers, right? A brood of serpents. They were de- they're descendants of that original serpent. They're people who serve the evil one. And Jesus said, if you're going to serve others, you can't serve me. Whoever is not with me is against me. So because of that alignment with the evil one, this generation has just like an unfaithful spouse turned their back on Yahweh. They've committed adultery. And that adultery is one of the principal metaphors in the Old Testament that was used to describe how Israel was constantly turning away from her husband, Yahweh. So to be an adulterous generation was to be unfaithful to Yahweh by serving other gods. So so these people are showing them that their hearts are evil, that, that they're rebellious, and that they're aligned with the evil one. And that their hearts are adulterous, that they 've turned away from and been unfaithful to God, and they 've done this by simply demanding a sign, by coming to Jesus, and say, "Show us a sign." And really, in their demand, they 're showing that they're skeptical, like Gen X, that they're skeptical, they're challenging Jesus authority. They're revealing their true nature because they're asking for something that Jesus has already given them in abundance. I mean, he's healed people. He's cleansed lepers. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. It's like he's doing all these signs and they come around and they say, would you show us a sign, please? Like they're just completely missing what he's doing. Miracle after miracle and they're refusing to recognize Him for what they are, which is just showing that they're blind, that they're Hearts are hard. And as a result, Jesus actually speaks judgment on them in verse 39. He says, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And no, that's not the prophet Jonas. Okay. He's also famous around here. Okay, what is the sign of Jonah? Let's look in Matthew 12:4. The very next verse, Jesus tells us. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, first of all, when you read that, and Jesus explains what he's talking about, you can't miss that he's speaking prophetically, speaking about something that's going to happen in the future, specifically his own death, his own burial in a tomb for three days, and then his resurrection on the third day. And he likens that, he compares that to Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. And if you don't know the story of Jonah, it's a great story. So go to the Old Testament today, read the book of Jonah, it's short. The prophet Jonah was famously thrown overboard from a ship as he was trying to run away from God. God sent a fish to swallow him. He spent three days inside of this giant fish. And Jesus says, that points to me. Now, Jonah himself was spat out of the fish and he made his way to the great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, as a, if you will, a resurrected prophet. He came back from the dead, just like Jesus was going to do. And given his life again, saved from certain death, he goes into this city and he preaches a revival. This is a a huge city. It's a pagan city. It's filled with people who are idolatrous, who don't know the God of Israel. In fact, they're violent, they're wicked, they're evil, and God is going to destroy them. But Jonah preaches, and they repent. They put sackcloth and ashes on, and they turn back. Now, it's possible, it's very possible, that the Ninevites actually knew Jonah's story. That they'd known that he'd been swallowed by a fish and, and barfed out three days later. Right? They knew, perhaps, this story. We don't know for sure. But if they knew that story, it's very possible that that miracle itself was a crucial sign that helped them to repent, that led them to repentance, which was a miracle in itself. And so so Jesus is saying then, using that story, he's saying that the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof that he is the Son of God will be his own death, burial, and resurrection, We need look no further to know who Jesus is. But he's also in the same breath saying to these people that because of their failure, their obstinacy, their failure to recognize all that he's already shown them, the majority of them will not repent even if someone were to die and be raised again. It's actually a statement of judgment. Now, You have to remember that these are people who think that because they are descended from Abraham, because they are the people of Israel, that they are better than everyone else because of their ethnic descent. But Jesus actually shows them to be worse than some of God's greatest, most ruthless, most violent, most pagan enemies, the Assyrians. So, so this sign that he promises them, the sign of Jonah, won't be a hope of salvation. It will, it will be a sign of judgment. Because he says at the end, the people of Nineveh, verse 41, the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up in the resurrection at the judgment with this generation and point their finger in condemnation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, these people that aren't ethnically descended from Abraham, they're going to be better off in the judgment than you are. And not only that, the queen of the south, verse 42, who is the queen of Sheba that we meet in 1 Kings 10, 2 Chronicles 9, this this woman who famously journeys a long way, probably from southern Arabia to Jerusalem because she heard about King Solomon and she wanted to hear his wisdom. And when she heard his wisdom, when she saw all of his wealth, it says it took her breath away. She, too, was not a Jew. She wasn't Jewish, but she was wise enough to be drawn to a king whose wisdom was unheard of. And Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater and Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. His name is Jesus. Something greater than Solomon is here. His name is Jesus. And, and to fail to repent like the, like the Ninevites. And to fail to come to Jesus like the Queen of the South. Even from the ends of the earth. No matter where you are. To fail to come to Jesus is to miss out on Jesus. He wants us to come to him, to repent, to become part of God's family. But often we, too, demand a sign. And there's a crucial difference between those who demand signs, God, show me what I want to see, and those who repent and come to Jesus. So what does that that mean for you and me? How do we today demand signs. And I I think some of us are are tempted. We're we're children of the enlightenment, which means that we like to see with our own eyes before we believe things. We're empiricists. We We want proof. I want to be able to see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell it. And if I can't, then it's not real. We want scientific proof, something that we can see in order to believe. But if we never see and are left with walking by faith in the absence of sight. What do we do then? Can we walk by faith without ever seeing? Others of us demand signs in that we're, we're pure American pragmatists. In other words, we want to know if something works. So for me to believe something, it has to work. It has to yield results. Maybe it has to yield a profit. If it doesn't work, that is if it's useless, then why would I ever put my faith in it? Why would I ever believe something that doesn't work in the real world? But what if this Jewish Savior comes along and says, follow me, give up everything, and even die to yourself? That doesn't seem to bode well for me. It seems pretty impractical to follow this Savior. But what if he calls me to that? Others of us are what we might call existentialists. In other words, we rely on our own experiences, our own our own view of the world to shape truth, to shape meaning. So Jesus has to fit my own experience in order to demand my faith. And so demanding a sign from Jesus might look like demanding Jesus conform to my experience or demanding Jesus to make me happy. Anybody ever asked Jesus to make you happy? Jesus Do what I want, make me happy, rather than understanding and seeing my life, seeing my experience in light of all that Jesus is. Now, none of these particular perspectives are evil in themselves. However, when they become demands, and we can only see God's kingdom through our demands, then we become as blind as Pharisees. And the only solution is exactly what the people of Nineveh, exactly what the Queen of the South did. The only solution is repentance. It's turning to Jesus and coming to the King, responding to His call to turn to Him in faith. So if I were to summarize this first part of this section, I would put it this way, that repentance towards God, not ethnicity, makes someone a member of God's family. We come into God's family by re- repenting and turning to Jesus. Now the second part is verses 43 to 45, which is, is really kind of a short, unique section. It's an interesting parable, and if you read it by itself, it really, it really seems out of place where we find it here. But it's not, because it actually pertains to Jesus' judgment, his words against this evil generation. He mentions them again in verse 45. And it's this parable about an unclean spirit leaving someone, an exorcism, if you will, a a, a demon coming out of someone and going around in, in desert places, getting homesick and wanting to go back and indwell that person. And Jesus is using this example as a parable to make a point about this generation that he's talking about, that demands a sign from him. He is not trying to teach us how demons act. Okay, that's, not the point. that's not the point of this little parable. It's not a, it's not a, a teaching on, on demons and exorcism. It's a teaching about who these people are. So what he's doing is he's comparing an exorcism. When a, a demon who's possessed a person comes out of that person, and he's comparing that to what I would call moralism. You see, even the term unclean, if you look at your text there, that's what it says about this spirit, an unclean spirit. The term unclean has, has ceremonial and ritual implications. Anything unclean, whether it was an animal or a person or a thing, could not come into God's presence. So if someone wanted to come to the temple with a sacrifice and be in God's presence, they had to be clean, their animal had to be clean, everything had to be clean. And that cleanliness came through conforming to a a set of standards, a set of ritual standards. You could say that one had to have their, verse 44, their house empty and swept and put in order. Now here's the point. Many many of the people of Jesus' day thought that this was something that they could do all by themselves. So through sheer grit, sheer determination, self-effort, one could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make themselves holy enough, clean enough to enter into God's presence. And this is something we do. We tell ourselves, we're going to do better. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to kick that habit. I'm going to get it together. I'm going to be a better person. We tell ourselves that and we grind our teeth together, we put our nose to the grindstone and we work hard and it works for a while until it doesn't. And then a trigger comes along, a temptation, a stress, and all of a sudden we find ourselves falling off the wagon and life goes back to how it used to be. And sometimes... It gets worse. Sometimes that demon that we got rid of brings back seven of his buddies. And Jesus was dealing with people who believed that they had to come to God on their own through conforming to the requirements of the law. They believed this was good enough to keep them in God's graces and under his blessing as long as they could hold it up. But they were wrong. Moralism, self-made goodness, behavior without submission to Jesus would get them nowhere. They would be left with an empty house, all swept up, all looking nice, in danger of being filled up with something even worse. You see, whether your life looks really messed up, maybe your life looks like you have a demon or seven running around in you. Or whether your life looks really cleaned up. You've kicked that demon out and you've cleaned things up and you've made yourself better. If Jesus isn't king, then Satan lays claim to your soul. If Jesus isn't king, Satan lays claim to your soul. But if Jesus is king, and here's the the beautiful promise, that if Jesus is king, then his Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. And no evil, unclean thing can lay claim to your soul. Jesus is the only one who can keep the evil one away. So if I were to give you a summary of this part, which I will, it's that submission to King Jesus, not conformity to the law, makes someone a part of God's family. Submission to King Jesus, not conforming to the law, is what makes a person a part of God's family. And finally we'll go to this third part where Jesus now has an interaction at the end of this chapter regarding his his biological family in verses 46 through 50. Jesus's mother and brothers, his his blood relatives, they show up on the scene as he's having this conversation and they immediately assert their privilege. So they they find somebody on the outside of the crowd and they say, "Hey, that guy's our, our blood relative. That's my son, that's our brother. Could you let him know that we're here? So he shows up on the scene, assert their privileges, send word to, G, to, to Jesus. And those present, who are all good Jews would certainly have recognized their privilege. I mean, here's Jesus, this miracle worker, this guy we're all hanging on his every word, and his mom's here? Dude, Get her up front. Get her in here. Make way for mom and the brothers. There's a priority that ought to have been given to them because of their special relationship as family. Father, mother, brothers, sisters. These are are the unique people who claim our highest loyalty and devotion. And in context, I mean, you could even probably see Jesus honoring them by saying, Hey everybody, I'm done for the day. I'm taking a lunch break. I'm going to go hang out with my mom. He could have stepped away and given attention to them. The crowd should have parted and and let them through. But without missing a beat, Jesus takes all of the ideas he's been building up in this entire section about what it means and what it doesn't mean to be part of God's family, and he concludes it with a pretty shocking statement Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then we're told he stretches out his hand towards his disciples, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And here in two sentences, Jesus completely redefines the family. God's family, which is scripturally our most important family, is not primarily biological it's not primarily social. It's not a hereditary reality. It's a spiritual reality. And it's based on one's relational connection with Jesus and obedience to His Father. In our relationship with God, who calls Himself Father, by the way, which means He calls us children, sons and daughters, our relationship to God is infinitely more important and primary than any other relationship, including our closest family members our connection to jesus is what makes us adopted members of his family as we repent from sin as we as we seek the king and his kingdom as we walk a path of of faithful obedience as disciples of jesus this is what it means to be part of god's family now does that mean that jesus doesn't value or care about our families i don't think that's what he's saying Because you look at his words elsewhere, and Jesus honors his own family. He calls us to honor our family as well. But what he knows is that any of our loves can be twisted. And he knows that our love for our family can itself become an idol. And Jesus will permit no other gods. Our devotion to Jesus supersedes, it goes above every other biological and earthly tie. A new spiritual family of disciples is being made, made up of people and orphans and lonely people and people in families already from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who are connected to King Jesus through faith and through obedience. Let me summarize this Last section here in this way is that obedience, not particular social relationships, shows someone to be a part of God's family. God's family isn't defined, defined by ethnicity, it's not defined by ritual, it's not defined by certain social relationships. It's defined by identification with Jesus. It's displayed through repentance through faith coming to Jesus, and through obedience to his Father. And many of us in the room today are sons and daughters of the King. Take that in for just a second. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the maker of the universe. He is delighted to call you father, and Jesus is delighted to call you little brother and and little sister. So can I say to you today, take heart. Take heart, little children. The Father loves you as his sons and daughters. Come to the table today. We have communion up here, which we celebrate every week. So if you're a visitor with us We'd love for you to come if you're a family member, if you're a son or daughter of of the Father through faith in Jesus, come and partake and be reminded today of your sonship, of your daughtership, of your place in the family of God. Others of you today wouldn't call yourself family members. You're content maybe where you are. You're content just kind of keeping Jesus at arm's length and being about your own business with your stuff. And I'd encourage you to take warning that you don't give your life to things that won't last. And in the end, miss the only family that will ultimately last. And others of you are unsure. You're not sure what to do with Jesus. Sounds interesting. Sounds exciting. Sounds like there's life there, but you maybe can't take that last step. And I would say today is the day to take stock. To speak to someone, to ask questions, to ask them about their relationship with God. To pray, to talk to God about it. We elders are ready to have a conversation with you. You can make your way to the prayer room and someone uh, could speak with you in there. But if you're unsure, don't just let this moment pass by. Because I believe that Jesus would speak to each of us through his spirit today and call us into his family. A family that will last forever. So if you're a member of that family, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come to the table now. You can come by yourself or with the group. You can stay and linger at the table, or you can take the elements back to your seat. That's up to you. But come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are pleased to draw children for yourself from every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation of the earth. God, that you call the lonely the oppressed, the isolated, the weak. God, you even call the proud and and those who have rebelled against you. You call your enemies. You call dead people into life. You call people into your family, and you call each of us. So we pray this day that you would do your work of drawing new family members in repentance to come to Jesus, to put their faith in him It's our only hope of salvation, to rest in him for eternal life. Jesus, would you do your work amongst us of encouraging us as your children to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Would you build up your church this day? We're grateful for all you've done, Jesus, to draw us into the family of God. We walk out of here today empowered by your Spirit to obey our Father. I pray all this in your name. Amen.